I'm Emma Hazlitt, and this week we're going fully unregulated on the podcast. It depends what kind of faecal matter it is hitting the air conditioning device. PR consigliere Paul Blanchard advises you to ditch the bland and just be human when you're dealing with a crisis. I always like to joke with my wife, you know, she'll, she'll say, how was your day when I get home? And I'll say, well, I've got three key messages about my day. <laughs> you know, it's not, people don't speak like that in real life. I would rather have an incoming call of an already interested journalist that I can share into a story than having to just ring up saying, please be interested in teacups. And that's the bit, you've got to be sufficiently spicy to attract attention and generate a bit of a buzz. So, hello, welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're talking scandal with PR guru Paul Blanchard. He's worked with politicians, celebrities and businesses, so he can give us a lot of good advice. Paul... When the shit hits the fan, what is the first thing you should do? Well, call me, I suppose, is the, is, <laughs> is the obvious thing there. I have to get the advert in at the beginning. It depends what kind of faecal matter it is hitting the air conditioning device. <laughs> um, but, but usually we say prevention is the, best, is the best form of cure, really. So it's about planning in, advi- in advance. Uh, having said that, some of our long-term clients still ring us out the blue and say, you know, there's this problem, there's that problem, oh, we God. have to deal with it immediately. So it can be a bit of a nightmare, really. And the kind of stuff that you deal with presumably ranges from a minor Twitter storm to a major tabloid disaster what's the worst thing you've been involved with it, it's incredible really because we work for global organizations where you know the board have like really old giffers around around the table and they don't understand twitter so a twitter troll with 17 followers will at mention one of the board members and give them a lot of grief and suddenly they're wanting to convene an emergency meeting of the board to, to decide how to deal with it so some of it is about uh, you know calming people down really and working behind the scenes There's a very quick rush to assume that something must be done. And about half of the time, the best thing to do is to just shut the hell up, is to just ignore it. Because it's this problem of the Streisand effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. All of the beaches in California are actually technically uh, available to the public and she has a beachfront property. So a a man took pictures of the entire coastline of California, which included a small bit of her, the beach outside her property. No one even knew that. I think it must have had about 20 views or something of the website. But she issued a writ on this person, her lawyers, uh, and tried to get this taken down, which had no right to do. Of course, that meant that ultimately 1.2 million people ended up viewing it. And there there is this issue that trying to cover something up, the act of covering it up or trying to deny it or defend it actually generates more eyeballs and more ears and more attention uh, than you originally um, wanted. So half the time, the advice is to just completely ignore it because anything you do will either legitimise it, call attention to it and, and certainly generate eyeballs. So sometimes just maintain a dignified silence. What you can do is shape the story, Mm -hmm. mitigate the damage and try as best you can to put the appropriate spin and check the facts. Most journalists are quite cooperative. They don't want a story. (laughs) They don't want to put a story that has factual inaccuracies and sometimes some of the story will do that so you can correct it as a service to them. But then you can also use that as an opportunity to, to, to put in some quotes and try and put the best spin on it possible. What people do, though, is they mistakenly... Uh, get frozen with fear, think mm-hmm. it will go away and then the story comes out anyway and they've lost their opportunity to either f- correct any errors or, or kind of minimise the damage and the story ends up being worse than it is. So normally the, um, when you're in crisis management situation it's not actually about managing the journalist, it's actually about managing the client. It's about making sure that they uh, are not going to lose their minds over this and trying to be, be calm in the middle of a storm. It's a great position that you're in and I've got to say one thing that's more maddening than anything else as a journalist is being told that this is not a story. 
Yes. <laughs> it's clearly a story because you're a journalist and you've just rung them up. So <laughs> that to me is, is uh, makes it self-evidently a story. There's one thing that makes me want to make something into a story if it wasn't already. Um, so what would you say is the worst mistake that everyone makes? In terms of life generally and then the, the press find out about it or dealing with the press? I think dealing with the press but also dealing with scandal generally because, you know, it used to just come from the press, now it comes from social media just as much, if not more. So, first of all, I would say burying your head in the sand is something that you can never, ever do, and that's a, that's a big problem that you get. Uh, also, reacting proportionately to it. Uh, I've seen, uh, you know, as you've just said there, people underreacting to stuff, saying this isn't a story when it clearly is, or thinking it's more of a story um, and, and thinking that the whole, the whole world's going to collapse in on them. I, I often think that media trainers, for example, um, uh, have a bit of a trick because they always, they always teach CEOs uh, in, how to be interviewed at a kind of Jeremy Paxman-esque level of intensity. And that's actually a bit of an ego trip for them and it justifies a significant fee for the media trainer. But no one ever really has that, that intensity level unless you're, you know, you're the Alton Towers CEO and someone's just lost their legs on the ride or you're the Prime Minister. Most CEOs will, will get a kind of respectful but, but temperate grilling. And mm -hmm. the, no one's ever kind of media trained for that level really. So either over or underreacting is a classic mistake and therefore, you know, reacting proportionally is, is the is almost all of it I mean actually you know that's that's a situation that I often find myself in is where you know I'll be having a conversation like we're having right now and we'll have somebody who's not necessarily that experienced in the media but is quite nervous and and has gone through media training and they'll they'll be very bland they won't say anything and as a journalist, that's really difficult. I hate, I can't stand it when people are over media trained, where they, yeah. they want, you know, uh, I always like to joke with my wife, you know, she'll she'll say, how was your day when I get home? And I'll say, well, I've got three key messages about my day. <laughs> you know, it's not, people don't speak like that in real life. And, and I think clearly, if, you know, you've got to be mindful if you're on the radio and you've got three minutes uh, on air, or you're talking to a journalist who's busy and they've got three minutes on the phone to talk to you about it. You've clearly got to get your points across. But most people, you know, like plain speaking and I, and I think that that's something that the art of plain speaking and, and speaking plainly is something that's lost actually in dealing with it and it, it is a little bit of as you've just said people get caught up in either their own ego or their own kind of over media training because you're a journalist when you ring up you just want someone to be straight with you to tell Human. you the facts yeah exactly and, and and I think at the moment there's this rush to over complicate almost everything and the, the, if you can wind it down everyone calm down be as plain speaking as clear as you possibly can then uh, First of all, you've won the journalist over. And, you know, there's even if you work in a shop and there's a customer service issue and a customer comes in that's angry or a journalist comes in with a, a hot inquiry and you feel a little bit on the defensive, the best way to deal with it is to be positive, is to be clear and try and calm everything down. Because usually, even if a journalist is going to write a story, you can shape it into something that's quite positive. I, I would say that, though, that half of the, the stuff that we do every day is trying to proactively create and engender interest from journalists in what, I, in what we, they do. And, and that's infinitely more stressful because if we've got a teacup <laughs> manufacturer, you know, who's just brought out a new teacup, who cares, you know, other than <laughs> them and, you know, maybe their competitors. Trying to, it, you know, interest a general journalist in teacups is, is awful. However, if there's a teacup scandal, if there's a manufacturing problem, I'm just grateful for the fact that you've rang us, you know, because it, <laughs> we can say, yep, yeah, that we've messed up, that we sent out 300 teacups that were the wrong colour and have poisoned a few kids you know but on the other hand we've got 20% off at the moment I would rather have an incoming call of an already interested journalist that I can shape into a story than having to just ring up saying please be interested in teacups
So basically a minor scandal is better than no news at all. It depends what you mean by scandal. I mean, most of the public and most readers are quite forgiving, really, unless you're clearly dodgy. And even worse than that, if you're if you're arrogant about it, people make a subjective assessment about the person's attitude. It's a huge aspect about dealing with the, the press that people forget is people buy from people. And even if you've got a good story, if you're clearly a twat and you come across as arrogant as you're saying it and not humble, then people aren't going to be listening to what you're saying anyway. So I would I would say, yes. The other thing is... There is this tendency in corporate messaging now to be as bland and as insipid oh, as God. possible. So, yes. so we will write a blog post for one of our CEO clients and then it will go to corporate for, for fact-checking and what we will get back will be an insipid mess, that a boring mess that no one will listen to. Yes, it won't offend anyone, but it's still got to be spicy and that's the bit. You've got to be sufficiently spicy to attract attention and generate a bit of a buzz. And that, I guess, is why the CEO of Ryanair is so beloved by so many journalists. I think it was him who once said... You're not getting a fucking refund, so fuck off. I personally wouldn't have advised any of my clients <laughs> to say that. Well, I think I think he's he's very authentically him, isn't he? Absolutely. Uh, and and you know we've seen this with uh, the kind of election of Donald Trump, and we've seen this with like Jeremy Corbyn supporters. Is people buy for that sense of authenticity? They don't want the kind of overly media trained Harriet Harman, Ed Miliband type. You know, identical politician, chief executive, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and and that is that is an issue that I think that our clients are starting to realise mm-hmm. is that you know if you we have a client who's a bank, you know if you want to follow the bank on Twitter, they'll tell you about their latest savings products and everything else. But if you follow the chief executive of the bank, you 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 don't want them to just robotically repeat the latest savings offers. You're, you're clearly looking for the the person to tell you a little bit about behind the scenes, what they're doing, what yeah. their opinion is. You want to get a sense of who they are, and that's why you would follow them, not to just learn about savings products. So so leveraging the CEO as a spokesperson so that he or she can build on what the, the company's doing is is the challenge, I think, over the next five to ten years that, that corporate comms teams are starting to learn. I mean, luckily we've got head starts on them, but as I say, at the moment, they just want them to shut the hell up. Say on social media you become the centre of some kind of Twitter storm and it's, it's people really taking offence at something you've done. Is it best to defend yourself? Or is it best just to kind of ignore it and hope it goes away? There's there's never a kind of one-size-fits-all solution, but we've had a number of clients that have had these kind of problems. I mean, the first thing to say is... Uh, is to take a genuine assessment as to the tweet itself. Because some some tweets need to be said. It might be controversial and very controversial, but if it, there's a legitimate opinion and it's done respectfully and it's not bigoted, you know, in, in any way, then actually I think there can be quite a, um, you know, a good thing, really, and I think that someone should stand by that. What we try and encourage our clients to do is to not engage in lots of different... Twitter spats with individual trolls because it's the minute you start engaging with one, you know, it'll just take up so much of your time. If, if you do want to uh, engage with a few people, though, we always tell clients that if if the person uh, criticising you is doing so respectfully, even robustly, but they're not being nasty about it and they're clearly not trolling you, then, um, you know, you should reply if you can because it's an opportunity to, to win them over and turn them around. But the, if they're starting to just... If they start the tweet with, you're an idiot or whatever, then you, you can just ignore them. I want to move on to some real-life examples and get your advice for big brands and people who've been hit by scandal recently. Firstly, a certain yacht-owning retail billionaire... What would you say to him right now? This is where it gets a little difficult in insofar as it's the tail wagging the dog because mm-hmm. I think sometimes people like 
uh, this certain yacht-owning billionaire yes. that we can't name. We probably can name him. Okay, well, okay. It's Philip Green. <laughs> yeah, we, we all knew that. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it's a bit like the tail wagging the dog because people like that think that they can do whatever they like and then the PR people will be able to put a spin on it. And I always say to clients, look, if you don't want to be in tomorrow's newspapers for clubbing baby seals to death and have all that imagery... Philip Green did not do that, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> he did not. We can say that. But we always say, then then call off the crew today. Don't send them out into the wilderness mm-hmm. with their clubs to beat the seals to death. And I think sometimes clients do need to know that. We, we, you know, we often say, look, if you don't want to be in the, the media for doing bad stuff, don't do bad stuff. And I think with Philip... Clearly, he's not been advised properly because he's he said some things that clearly are his, his view. But if I was advising him, I, it, it wouldn't be a question of mitigating the language that he used because he said he was going to sort the pensions out. I mean, that, unfortunately, was either deliberately vague or having dealt with a lot of people like that and know what it's like to be a kind of rabbit in the media headlights where everyone's panicking, is it probably is always cock up rather than conspiracy probably just said that off the cuff but it created endless days of what the, of, of analyzing what the word sort meant did it mean he was going to write a check for 450 million quid to plug the the black hole in the pension or did it just mean that he was going to somehow you know do some kind of token contribution or something no one actually knew whereas he should have been completely in advance so, so the first thing i would say is what he ought to have done is got together with his senior people including a media advisor before he went to the media and had a crisis meeting of an where they all sat around the table and A, worked out what he was going to do. Sometimes some of our clients, you know, we're asked to produce a statement to the media and, and I say, right, okay, well, what's the decision? Are you going to suspend this guy pending the investigation? Are you going to fire him? You know, what are you going to do? And they go, oh, yeah, we, we haven't thought of that. And they think there can, there can just be this generic statement that yeah. the media will say, you know, the, the company was considering it or something. So the first thing is you need a clear decision on what you need to do. And often, bizarrely, where the people that affect that, where the person who actually goes to the CEO and says, okay, what are you actually going to do about this and no one else has asked them even their board or their their staff or whatever which is really odd the next the next thing you need is a firm line a communication line is what exactly is the line what are you going to tell the media and particularly if it's a hot story and lots of journalists are interested you're better off creating a, a putting a statement together that's very detailed answers all their questions in one step and then putting that out on social media or the wires or both whatever and then at least people have got something to run you know work from and then start to pick and choose individual journalists that might give you a a fair hearing one-to-one. Assuming that our client didn't come across as arrogant or, you know, that it wasn't going to backfire against them because sometimes being quiet is the best thing to do. Let's say Philip was uh, in a good mood that day and was feeling suitably calm and uh, wanted to, you know, uh, temperate, should we say, then I would have put him on the media with two or three journalists that either we knew very well mm-hmm. that would, you know, they're journalists, so they're going to ask him the questions. Of course they are, but they're going to give him a fair hearing. They're not going to try and stitch him up. Sometimes our clients come to us and they've got one or two journalists in the industry that they're already friendly with themselves, in which case, brilliant. We might suggest one and they might suggest two themselves. But again, we have to tell our clients that those those journalists might be friendly with them, but they're still journalists. It's not in their own reputation's interest to go easy on them, particularly if there's a corporate scandal. So they shouldn't naively walk into that podcast or that interview, whatever it is, with a friendly journalist and expect that journalist to go easy on them because they're not going to do that. So next real-life example, the makers of Toblerone, what would you say to them? I think they did everything right. <laughs> 
really? Well, the furore that it created made me buy a Toblerone. <laughs> so <laughs> making me think about eating Toblerone right now. So I'm not a Toblerone expert, but for me, as far as I'm concerned, it's a confectionery product. They clearly changed it, but the furore and the attention that developed, that to me is a classic example of that being the right kind of attention. The, out, the so-called outrage that it generated actually met, reminded a lot of people that Toblerone's existed, so I imagine did loads for their sales. If they lost a few hardcore people, uh, hardcore fans, because they, they, you know, they changed their confectionery, I don't think they'll be that bothered given that they'll now have hundreds of thousands of new people that'll be buying it. I also worry that it might have been a bit of astroturfing. I mean, I genuinely don't know the answer to that in terms of what Toblerone have done. But, you know, for example, bringing back Whisper, that very famous campaign on Facebook, was entirely created out of thin air by Freud's, the agency. So there, were, there was no real people that wanted to bring the Whisper Bar back. The, the owners of Cadbury wanted to bring the Whisper Bar back and they briefed Freud's to say, can you generate an AstroTurf? Because uh, AstroTurf is fake grassroots, you see. Uh, so all this, you know, whenever you see a grassroots campaign, half of them are, maybe about a third of them are real. by this. It's called AstroTurfing because it's a real thing. A third of them are real, most of them aren't. Fake grassroots? Yeah, AstroTurfing. What, what else? Oh, there's tons you can do. How long is this a seven hour podcast or <laughs> I'm gonna get myself into terrible trouble here because I'm gonna end up naming campaigns that probably were real. But I mean I would say whenever you see anything in the media where a group of people have suddenly got together out of thin air to to campaign on something, it's usually fake. What about our foreign secretary? What would you say to him when he is in his first meeting with Donald Trump? What should he do? How should he spin it? That to me is gonna be an incredible meeting because both of them are just complete cards, aren't they? I mean, both of them are mavericks in the best and the worst senses of the word, so I have absolutely no clue about that. Boris has been absolutely fantastic about his PR, right from the very beginning going on, have I got news for you? If you read his Telegraph column, he's actually quite a thoughtful politician and very, very clever, very sensible. But the, the the persona that he's created in the media is an exaggerated version of himself. It's not fake, so there is that sense of authenticity. It's a bit like Nigel Farage. He isn't pretending to be someone else, but he does exaggerate his personality when he's on air. And people love that because the problem is when you get these these identikit, these toolkit politicians like Ed Miliband, for example, who just go in the generic suit. Yeah, and I keep picking on him, but he deserves it. You know, he, he he thought he had to act prime ministerial in a certain way, and that just turned most people off because they knew that that, that wasn't how he, he was in real life. So I would say authenticity is, is hugely important. So I don't, I don't know about Boris. I think whatever happens at the end of that meeting, when he comes out, people are going to be interested in what he's got to say. Tony Blair wants to return to politics. What would your advice be to him? Oh, I have a conflict of interest there because I absolutely love Tony Blair. I'm one of the few people left in the country that think he was one of the most amazing prime ministers we've ever had. I hope Twitter doesn't hear that. Oh, when when the Chilcot report came out, I wrote a piece uh, called In Defence of Tony Blair and I knew when I posted it that it would go crazy. My my social media assistant, when she clicked the button to post it in our practice, she she put the tin hat icon on (laughs) (laughs) to to indicate that it was done. It's a difficult one with Tony because I think his time has gone really and I say that as someone who you know is a big fan of him he was an incredible Prime Minister it would have been great if he could have been President of Europe and all that because I think we wouldn't have he wouldn't have allowed this Brexit nonsense to have, to have got hold but uh, in the end it's it's worked I, clearly I, I don't think he should be 
uh, doing it. It's very difficult if you're a former prime minister, really, mm. because almost anything you do is going to be criticised and said that it's going to demean the office. We're used generationally to have prime ministers and presidents that were quite old men. So they usually when they stood down, like George W. Bush, you know, he's gone to retire to his ranch. But we, we like David Cameron, Barack Obama, Tony Blair, we've had a, a, a variety of politicians recently who, are, who, who achieved the very top job quite early in their career and yeah. then clearly going to have a second career afterwards. Tony's very interesting in terms of his PR because he deliberately chose to not allow the negative PR to take hold. Uh, and I, I say that as someone who respects what he did, but also as a communications professional, is that he, he stood down as Prime Minister... He then he stood down as an MP because he thought that Gordon Brown would make a terrible hash of it, which he clearly did, and thought if he remained in Parliament, people are going to be asking, asking, you know, bring back Tony. And he thought, well, I'm, you know, I've done ten years, I'm going to move on. The problem then is, in order to give that distance, Gordon then kind of slagged him off for a couple of years, blamed everything on the the previous guy, which you can't blame him for in a sense. They all do that, really, don't they? But there was a kind of negative PR that 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 took root that Tony deliberately decided strategically to just let to not not be bothered about. And it was the complete opposite of New Labour because Peter Mandelson used to run this rapid rebuttal uh, unit. So if anyone said anything that was untrue about Labour's policies in 1996 and 1997, there would be a press release din- din- you know, contradicting it within five minutes. And that's what happened here is they deliberately decided not to do that because he would say, I'm busy trying to save the world and you know encourage sport and Africa and religion or whatever, whatever pies he's got fingers in. But for me, I, I, I would say, go and do something else, Tony. I read that you kind of started in PR by making friends with journalists because you couldn't, you were running your own business, you couldn't afford PR, so you just got to know some journalists. What would your advice be to someone in small business who, you know, wants to understand more about PR but doesn't have the money to hire an agency? I mean, I use that in my corporate biography as a device to say why I started my practice. But the real reason I made friends with journalists is I was just so desperately lonely and I had so little and few friends that I thought I would use that as a technique. Get some violin (laughs) music put on there. Um, yeah, well, that's how I got into PR many, many miserable years ago uh, was because I couldn't afford to advertise my first business. So I started to, to befriend some journalists. And it, it wasn't even as calculatedly as it sounds, but I just thought I'll buy him a few drinks and have a bit of a chat. And, and I think that's one of the best ways to deal with journalists is to treat them as people. So, you know, if I ever buy a lunch or a breakfast or a pint for a journalist, I, I would never ask any, you know, anything in return because it's, it's actually it's just a not very nice thing to do, really. And also, not asking is one of the best ways to build obligation. Um, it's it, true. It is. So, you know, if you're just a nice person, you get on their radar and trying to be helpful as well. One of the things that we do for a lot of journalists in our practice is we will try and help them out even if it doesn't lead to any coverage for our client because it just builds obligation. And, and we, I know that sounds awfully cynical, but we don't even think of it as that. We're just there to help as many people as we can because usually that means you'll be front of mind if a journalist needs a quote. Uh, I think just being reliable as well. I think most people just spray out a press release from a kind of media disc to 500 journalists and wonder why not one person ever rings them. And that's because all the journalists I know, their inboxes are constantly pinging with generic, horrible press release after generic, horrible press release. I say, look, most journalists just want a two-line email that just says, actually, tomorrow I'm going to dress as a chicken and I'm going to throw myself off Tower Bridge (laughs) at 11 o'clock. That would would work for us. (laughs) 
But you see, not, not, most people would dress that up as a huge press release and have acres of quotes from the managing director and chairman and all that. And that's the big truth about press releases is that they're not written for journalists. They're written for the managing director of their client to make press releases look good. And the whole thing's just completely counterproductive. So just going back to, you know, getting in touch with journalists, what, what you did was essentially look them up and find their phone number or find their email address, right? I mean, I've been doing PR now for 20 miserable years. I've got a reasonable contact book. But even then, you know, half of the time that we, in our practice, if we're trying to engender some coverage for a client, we, we won't know the journalist. We've got a media database that we subscribe to. Uh, and sometimes even if that's not up to date, we'll just guess that person's email address, find them on LinkedIn, find them on Twitter. I mean, it's quite obvious, really. But what we what we then do is we always do it from their point of view. So we don't say, hi, journalist, we've got this marvellous story that you think, you know, will be marvellous, and here's the MD talking about it. We would just say, you know, we're, we're retained by this company or this person. We think that you you might be interested in this in, in a kind of a one-liner and say, you know, do you want to have a quick chat about it? Because most most journalists know themselves whether they're interested in it. And I think if you make the contact too long, it becomes too long, didn't read. Mm-hmm. So a one-line email to a journalist will actually get a response, whereas a, 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 an eight-line email probably won't. Because you're busy. I mean, how many, you know, how many of your listeners will be overwhelmed with the amount of emails they get every day? I still don't understand why people want to then send more of them. I get emails because I'm on various databases, which I ignore, and then I'll get another email the next day saying, oh, have you caught caught up with this email yet? And I ignore that one as well. It's just insane. Having cleared out my inbox yesterday, I left the office this morning at 10 o'clock with 500 emails, so that was great. Because you, you must be on every generic... Because you know you're I'm you're running all. City AM's digital operation, you'll be on you'll be on everything. So you'll get. I mean, you should write a book with like like a coffee table book with like the worst examples of stuff. And also, it, it annoys me how badly um, curated some of these lists are. So you know, I run a a, a a podcast, and I will get asked whether I want to cover you know a scandal about teacup manufacturing in Liechtenstein. No, I don't. You know, why have I even? Why has my email address come up in a search result? And the real reason, of course, is is that some PR intern um, who gets their bus fare there and back to, you know, a big agency has just been given the login to a database and just thinks, oh, I'll tell you what, I will just send this to 12,000 journalists because then that will guarantee me five or six responses. In fact, they won't even get that. I would rather just email it to five or six people that have and done some and send a genuine email. You can kind of tell as a person whether the email you're reading is a boilerplate email or mm, not. Very easily. It, it's, uh, even ones that are cleverly tried to disguise it, you can still tell by the language and sometimes even just by the way it looks before you've even read it. Mm-hmm. As the one thing I, will, I always say, if, if it's someone I don't know and they say, hi, how are you? I will delete it immediately. You don't know who I am, so therefore you don't care how I am. Hey, Paul, well, thank you so much for coming down today. I just um, ranted and raved, haven't I? No, I do apologise. We love it. <laughs> Before we finish, I just, I, I have one last question, and that is you've worked with a lot of different groups of people. Of celebrities, politicians and, gen, uh, and businesses, who are the most disastrous and the hardest to work with? Oh, that one's uh, very easy. Chief executives who have founded their own business. Entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs who have been in business for 20 years and they're very successful. They're worth a couple of hundred million. And the problem is they've, they've never heard the word no. You know, their board is, is, was largely appointed by them. There might be a couple of token non-execs around the board from a bank or whatever, but even then they're outnumbered. You know, their family are supported by them. No one's ever told them the word no. So they come to someone like us and they think, get me in front of the Wall Street Journal because I'm the, you know, the best, I don't know, 
DIY shop in Birmingham or whatever and you think well you know you can't just do that you've got to have an interesting story so people like that and, and also the, the, sometimes the sense of arrogance with them because our society values successful people that have made a lot of money from scratch uh, and therefore they, they, they mistakenly assume that they're therefore the best at absolutely everything that they do so often our, the biggest challenge with our clients is we're the first people in decades to actually tell them no or God. to try and try and get them to be less of a twat is difficult. <laughs> Having said that, we work with some self-made entrepreneurs that are unbelievably courteous and full of humility. There's never you can never generalise. And do you want to give your podcast a quick plug? We're the second best podcast out there after this one, uh, <laughs> and it's called Media Masters, and uh, it's MediaMasters.fm if you want to tune in. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Christian May on your editor, who mm-hmm. was very good. Absolutely, Paul Blanchard. Thank you very much. Thanks to Paul Blanchard, this has been City AM Unregulated. Get unregulated on cityam.com, subscribe with iTunes, Audio Boom, or use RSS with your favourite podcast player. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production. Mm-hmm.